0: Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Matthew Johnson, and I'm here today with Stephen Bradley, associate professor and chair in the Department of African American Studies at Loyola Marymount University, to talk about his new book, Upending the Ivory Tower: Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Ivy League. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Yeah, so I mean, so your first book was about you know black student activism at Columbia University. What led you to go from there to write a, a broader book about the entire Ivy League? Well, w- one of the things I was trying to figure out. Uh, with the Harlem versus Columbia book.
1: And uh, I think that intrigued me even more was this idea of why on earth would these black students who, who had every opportunity to, to, to live, I guess you could say, uh, uh, an upper middle-class lifestyle after graduating from an Ivy League school, why would they protest? Why would they, uh, make demands of a university or anything like that when they had, uh, when they had the privilege of attending uh, attending a place where most people couldn't step foot. And so I, I wanted to know about that in a larger way um, after the Harlem versus Columbia book. But I also wanted to know what was the difference between uh, institutions like Columbia, which which uh, sat in the middle of an urban area, and institutions like Dartmouth or uh, or, or Cornell um, that found themselves in more rural areas, and uh, how is the the relationship between the the community and 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 the the students themselves? Uh, what would be the differences when you couldn't call on the community to help you? Um, And that sort of thing. So so there were a a lot of questions that that came up when I was looking uh, when I was writing the Harlem versus Columbia book that, that brought me to
0: upending the ivory tower. And I'm wondering what it's like to study the Ivy League because you, in, in the beginning of your book, you call yourself an Ivy outsider, right? Because you haven't uh, attended an Ivy League institution like me. I haven't attended an Ivy League institution. I'm definitely an outsider. Uh, and you, you, you recall this really telling conversation at the beginning of the book with one uh, one librarian or archivist in the Ivy League that told you, we don't just let uh, outsiders in. <laughs> it was really telling. And so I was wondering, you know, what is it like trying to research these places in, as an outsider? Yeah, by and large, uh you know, everybody was, was quite hospitable. Uh, as
1: I say, some places they treated me like a, like a skinny nephew and they kept feeding me documents and feeding me documents. Uh, but, but at one particular place it, and this was fairly early on in the research, I, I attempted to go into uh, the library and, uh, and in not the nicest way that, uh, you know, one of these, uh, gatekeepers, I guess you could call them, explained that I don't, uh, you know, that we don't let outsiders in. To me, I thought that was, it was revelatory in a way, uh, that, uh, there's, uh, something at these places that's not for, uh, mass consumption, that, that, uh, there's an awareness of sorts that some people are insiders and some people are outsiders. And so, Thankfully, most people weren't, uh, you know, weren't that kind uh, that, that that wouldn't allow me to to find out in terms of of uh, the information and and that sort of thing. Most of these institutions were fairly forthcoming. I think the best part about these institutions is they keep excellent records of themselves, and so I don't know if that happens because. Uh, because they, they value themselves and they think themselves important, uh, and that people in the future would want to know about them, uh, or if it's something else, but in any event, it, it, uh, the records that they keep are, are are very helpful as long as
0: uh as long as researchers can get to Yeah them. sometimes you know arrogance and, and a sense of self importance is great for historians, isn't it? <laughs> right, right, right. It helps in the right. future, definitely. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could you know, set the scene for some of our listeners of, you know, what was it, what was it like for the few black students who actually gained access to these institutions before the black campus movement or the black student movement? Yeah, I, I
1: think this was this was one of the hardest parts to to research because it was uh, uh, it invoked uh, such emotion for me. Uh, early students dealt with uh, dealt with a, a kind of isolation that's unknown to many of us, and so uh, I use various people to 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 speak to this isolation, uh, various figures, and so one of those is Jay Saunders Redding, uh, who. Uh, entered Brown University in 1924 uh, and graduated in 1928, he entered, and perhaps there were four students uh, on campus uh, when he entered the university, two of which uh, graduated while he was there, and then he was left with another Black student. And it was very difficult for him because uh, those two Black students that were left didn't want to appear to to only care about black things, and so they wouldn't be seen together in public. And and uh, one of the students that, or the other student, um, Jay Red, Saunders Redding's friend, uh, talked about just the feelings of always being looked at, and and how he felt like people were always waiting on him to make a bad break. And so, to me, this. In many ways, uh, uh, represented the the kind of racial battle fatigue that the the young people and students had in this earlier period trying to make it through these ivy ivy league institutions that were exclusively white and um and uh, not necessarily welcoming. And so uh, to make a long story short, the friend of Jay Saunders Redding ended up dropping out of Brown and committing suicide. Now I don't make a, a causal argument about uh, Brown University and and uh, the death of of that young man, but I will say that 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 many of the people that I uh, looked into for this earlier period uh, talked about how uh, there wasn't a day or a minute or or an hour that went by that they weren't reminded of their of their their skin weren't reminded of their blackness, and so um, uh, another person, uh, Harvard alumnus uh, John Hope Franklin, talked about how uh, he sat sat in class while his professor were, was telling uh, darky jokes and and things like that, and so so these were just very hard times because uh, people like Du Bois and Charles Hamilton Houston had to figure out a way to to make it on these campuses without being necessarily welcomed, and so they did so uh, by uh, banding together, and so that's why you had the establishment of Alpha Phi Alpha uh, at Cornell University and other similar kinds of groups uh, in various, various places.
0: And and, a lot of your book is about these students who are trying to address some of those issues. And and so my next question is just about the the origins uh, of the black student movement, because one of the things that I kind of struggle with is just kind of explaining the relationship between the black student movement and the rise of civil rights and black power, while also trying to acknowledge that this is, you know, the black student movement is kind of its own thing at the same time. And so I was wondering, you know, how you see the relationship between the black student movement and civil rights and black power?
1: Yeah, I think
0: uh, one of the things that we often forget is that the the civil rights
1: movement, the modern civil rights movement as we know it, uh, was largely catalyzed and fueled by the work of, of students, of young people. And so uh, if you're looking at uh, some of the court cases, they were all about young people uh, and education. If you're looking at some of the the, the the most popular activities in the way of freedom rides and sit-ins and that sort of thing. These were all uh, students uh, who were acting off campus to try to uh, confront segregation, confront uh, institutional racism and that sort of thing. Where we see the intersection is when Uh, These students, uh, these students are are students whose parents or themselves had participated in the movement, brought the movement back to campus. And so you'll see this in various ways. Out at uh, Berkeley, you saw uh, students who had participated in the civil rights movement in the forefront of the free speech movement, uh, students at Columbia University, like Talani Davis, whose parents had participated in the civil rights movement in Virginia, uh, uh, she came back to 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 college energized to participate uh, in the movement and to bring it onto campus. One of the things that that uh, that happened, though, is. Uh, by the mid 1960s there was a a movement on these ivy league campuses uh to to admit black students and so once there was a uh i guess you could say a critical mass uh, students were able to to create an identity for themselves and to start to push back a little bit on uh, on the institution's role uh in civil rights uh and access and so these students coming from You know, from from spaces where uh, the civil rights movement was taking hold, where the black power movement was taking hold, couldn't ignore any of that when when they came to campus. And so uh, so I think that the intersection occurred because largely because um, of the rise of the what what in the book I call the larger black freedom movement, which entailed the civil rights and black power movement, the black arts movement, and the the black campus movement. And, and
0: I'm wondering, so clearly one of the things that you, you um, outline in the book is activism looks very different on all of these Ivy League campuses. Um, but what are, if you were to look at the, as a whole, what are some of the common demands that activists made in the Ivy League?
1: Yeah. And I think that uh, that's an important question. So, uh, some common demands. One was, of course, an increase in black admissions that uh, and I, I admire this demand because it had very little to do with the students themselves. Uh, of course, they faced mistreatment, but they were calling for increased black admissions, uh, you know, largely for students that they may or, or may not have been able to meet. Uh, and so increased black admissions was one of those things. Uh, of course, uh, 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 work with retention. So students, uh, another one, um, had to do with, um, had to do with, with things like affinity spaces, uh, where black students could go to, uh, uh go to, to, to be themselves and not have to worry about. Uh, in the book what i call white gaze uh that is people always looking at them always uh wondering about them uh always students always black students always having to respond to to issues of race and and that sort of thing uh and so that was a, a, another common demand um uh but then something that that i also found to be common was this uh idea that the institution had to had to create uh, or be part of black freedom in some way fashion or form and so at princeton university that looked like the institution divesting itself of uh its 127 million dollars uh investment in south africa but um at Columbia University and and Penn, uh, that meant that the university shouldn't be expanding into uh, poor black neighborhoods uh, and um, and that sort of thing. So, it much of it just depended on um, uh, depended on space, but there were some commonality
0: between them all. Yeah, was there any of those demands that that received the most resistance from these Ivy League institutions?
1: Well. I think uh some of the demands that were hardest for the institution um or or at least took a little bit of time uh came in the way of of uh those associated with uh you know with money uh and so uh in that way uh institutions and those who were caretakers of the institutions uh, could Sympathize with students who needed to feel welcomed on campus, um, who who uh, wanted to uh, be able to 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 go to class and to make good without uh, feeling so different. They could sympathize with that, but it's it's uh, it was the resources that sometimes came slower than 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 other things. Um, and so, in a case like uh, Brown University in 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 1968 uh students uh had been in conversation with deans and the president of the of the institution to to increase black enrollment of course uh the president of the institution his name was Raymond hefner um and the dean of pembroke Pembroke college uh that's uh at the time brown's women's college uh they they agreed that there should be more black admissions, but uh they didn't necessarily uh commit to 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 mobilizing resources for that effort and so that's when students had to walk off of campus led by the the black women of pembroke which is a wonderful story by the way uh led by the black women of pembroke um african-american men from from brown university they walked off and and went and took up residence at the at, at one of the local black churches and um and eventually, the university decided that it would it would uh, dedicate one point two million dollars towards towards the recruitment effort. The same kind of thing happens uh, out at the University of Pennsylvania when um, when uh, students uh, pressed against the university to stop uh, expanding into West Philadelphia, uh, and uh, that led to. Uh, some radical white students and black students uh, uh, taking over uh, College Hall. And um, what resulted from it was the university's um, uh, statement uh, concerning a a dedication of of nearly $10 million to help with uh, housing costs and things like this of, of people who would be displaced by university expansion. But that took uh, these students pushing. And so that's that's one of the major kind of assertions of the book that that uh, liberal administrators and and uh, even the the nicest ones, the ones most sympathetic to the civil rights movement and th- that sort of thing. They needed to be pushed in order to act. Uh, and that's the way of institutions. Institutions don't change by
0: themselves. They have to be nudged. Yeah, I want to go back to what you were talking about in, in terms of Philadelphia and some of these spaces, because it gets to the, one of your comments about money and when when money's at stake, uh, just it adds another layer, of, another obstacle for black students um, to get certain reforms. And and what's happening in you know a place like, I think my favorite chapters are the, the ones on Philadelphia and, and uh, the area around Harlem. So what are universities doing in those urban spaces around the university that was really concerning black students and and the Black residents who are living around the university? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I think this space issue is is another one of the themes
1: of the book. Uh, The space issue uh, is one that can't be uh, understated. Uh, These institutions competed with each other, uh, and so... uh, when one institution had this many square feet to you know to boast about another institution wanted as much and they were competing for the same students uh and uh and so uh each institution wanted to have as many uh amenities as possible and so in spaces um that are more rural or or less urban, uh, you can push out a little bit further. But in spaces like New York City and Manhattan or in uh, uh, West Philadelphia, uh, the city is upon you. And so uh, these institutions took advantage of uh, federal legislation in the way of urban renewal. Uh, Some people called it Negro removal. Uh, And so uh, this federal uh, funding Came along with state funding and municipal funding. Uh, as long as these institutions were able to uh, provide kind of a uh, a plan, a renewal plan, uh, they pretty much were uh, passed in terms um, or, or given permission to to expand as much as they needed to. That's uh, because you know, the federal government thought that these institutions were creating knowledge that was uh, useful to the government, uh, and to the United States. And because they thought that these institutions were creating, uh, future leaders and, and that sort of thing. Well, that's the, that's where the rub occurs is who gets to own the space, uh, residents, oftentimes, uh, working class, poor and black, or, uh, the future leaders of America and the world. And so, uh, uh, when that occurs, uh it seems almost hopeless in a sense for the residents who uh, oftentimes are renters uh, and um, uh, don't have a great deal of resources to push against you know some of the most well endowed institutions in the nation uh and so uh what they had was the ability to organize what they had was the zeitgeist of the moment where uh black power called for uh Neighborhoods to to uh, uh, to to pull together to push against uh, white institutions uh, owning property and and pushing into what black people considered their neighborhoods and and that sort of thing. Students uh, wanting to be part of the movement would uh, work in the community, and when they worked in the community, this is white and black students when they worked in the community. Uh, in both Harlem and in West Philadelphia, what they found was residents said, we need help in keeping our homes uh, and providing uh, for ourselves as these institutions push. And um, that's when you saw some of the some of the major demonstrations of the era take place, and so at Col- Columbia University, of course, uh, students ended up taking over five campus buildings in protest of the university's expansion and the university's ties to, you know, to to war research. Uh, and at Penn, it was a similar kind of situation where uh, hundreds of students ended up participating in a demonstration that that led to to the university. Um, conceding that, uh, its expansion had been aggressive and roughshod. And, um, and so it slowed expansion for, for a little while, but, but yeah, students wanting to be part of that, that, that movement were able to coalesce with community members. And I think that that's a beautiful thing because there's oftentimes this, uh, uh, what people call a town gown relationship between students and, and community members. Well, I, I argue that, that black students were able to take advantage of the community, and the community were able to take advantage of black students who were practicing what I called uh, black student power, that is, the ability of these students to use their status to to uh, fight on behalf, and when win. Victories for the larger Black Freedom Movement.
0: Yeah, that's a great lead into something else I want to talk about, which is the the tactics that these students use. And you mentioned you know, building takeovers really briefly, and the relationship with uh, using the resources in the community. You know, what were did you see any any tactics that were especially effective in pushing these? You know, what you call liberal administrators to actually um, create some meaningful reforms?
1: Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> building takeovers. Uh, you know, was was a popular tactic. Definitely a popular tactic, and so uh, it wasn't new. Um, out at uh, at Berkeley, uh, students had taken over buildings before. Uh, in '68, at Howard University, uh, black students took over campus buildings, and some of the black students at Columbia and Cornell University had actually uh, been at Howard when students had taken over. Uh, campus buildings, and so, uh, I guess they kind of picked up the tactic there when they came back to their campuses. And so, uh, uh the building takeovers at Columbia, uh, at Cornell, at Princeton, uh, uh and at Penn, uh, uh, were a result of this kind of increased militance that we saw amongst students, um, and uh. Now, one of the things that that I have to use as a caveat is these students tried to speak with authorities beforehand and tried to negotiate and things like this. The building takeovers had, had been part of escalation in some ways, and so that was certainly one technique, but there were other techniques that black students in Ivy League used during the 1960s um, uh, at Brown University. As I mentioned, they, they used a technique to to walk off campus. They had talked about using the method uh, that Columbia students use, that is the building takeover. But they thought, no, nah, we don't want to do it like that. Uh, and so they they said, we will give the the institution an opportunity to reflect on what it is without black students. And so uh, and so they walked off of campus, and and that was just as effective as as, as uh, a building takeover, just the same. Uh, places like Dartmouth College uh, benefited actually from the building takeovers at Columbia University, uh, where the you know president of of, of Dartmouth and and administrators uh, didn't want to see the kind of tumult that occurred when at Columbia University the president called. You know, a thousand New York police officers on a campus to remove students and it became a bloody affair at Dartmouth. They didn't want that. And so uh, at Dartmouth College, black students actually negotiated with trustees and um, and were able to get many of the, you know, many of the the concessions that other students were able to get. at other campuses, because of building takeovers and things like that, and so, so there were different techniques that that students used, but by and large, I believe they were successful in uh,
0: creating more access and opportunities uh, for Black students. We haven't so far. We haven't really talked much about black studies, so I wanted to talk about that for for a minute. It's maybe one of the most kind of visible and enduring legacies of, of the movement. And so I was I was wondering for for black students at the time, why was that such an important initiative um, to get into the uh, either a department form or into a, a center for African American studies or black studies? Why was that so important for them? Uh, well.
1: Again, this was one of the most popular demands amongst black students, uh, not only in the Ivy League but across the nation, uh, that of black studies. Part of what's going on here is uh, a push against and and I don't have better words for it, but a push against white supremacy. these students, these black students. Uh, would come to Ivy League institutions where uh, they would study and delve into Western civilization, where they would uh, see the statues on campus that that were ancient Greek and Rome um, of origin, and and see the paintings on the wall that were French and you know it, you know whatever it was, and so um, and they talk about all of these important figures from Europe. Uh, And so there was nothing on these campus that gave the sense that Black people, um, whether from the continent or in the diaspora in general, had ever contributed anything to the world. And so uh, part of what they wanted to do was to uh, decolonize knowledge. Uh, And so Knowledge in many ways had been the exclusive terrain of of uh, of whiteness, in a sense, in these Ivy League institutions. And so, um, in sixty eight and uh, sixty nine at Yale University, when people like Armstead Robinson uh, and his uh, peers uh, did the the really, and I have no better words for this either, the really non sexy work of creating. Uh, a unit, uh, an Afro-American studies unit, um, they did something that I think is is uh was revolutionary. And this is why I um uh, I I claim that uh those who helped to create black studies in these exclusively white spaces were as much advocates of black power as Huey Newton or Elaine Brown or or any of these people, uh, they were able to change the curriculums of these institutions um and add and enhance the curriculums of these institutions that had been around since before well since before there was an official nation and so uh to me that was fascinating and so uh it didn't come easy uh at at um Yale University, there were those who said, well, if it's that important, why can't we just put it in the regular curriculum of history? And these are people who were advocates and, and allies, so-called allies of black people uh, that pushed against the black studies unit. The students made the argument that that. Had it been that important before to you, you would have done it before. You would have hired black people before. And so you've lived this way the whole time. And so now, uh, now that we make this push, there's, you know, there's kind of a resistance. I think uh, other people worried that it would be um, too much, uh, you know, too much of a cultural thing and not necessarily an academic thing. Uh, And many, many people were able to put to put to bed that that thought. Um, at Harvard University uh it, I call uh the chapter on Harvard I I, I call it Black Studies the Hard Way and so it took, it took a it took a a good deal of protest uh and actions uh to uh get to the point where where the faculty would vote in favor of an Afro-American Studies program and it was fairly unique in the sense that um that students would get the opportunity to help hire faculty members, but also to help tenure uh, faculty members. And that, that was, that was very, very unique uh, in itself. I thought it was a good idea when I was a student, but now that I'm a faculty member, I, I, you know, I rethink it all, but, 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 but yeah, that, that was, that was, that was, um that was a struggle there, but probably the, in my mind, one of the most interesting, uh, interesting struggles to highlight was that at cornell university where uh james turner uh students brought james turner to campus to to uh establish something called the africana studies and research center uh which was uh in my mind one of the one of the highlights of the of the period of black power that is here was a uh the center that reported directly to the provost where most units reported to the college of arts and sciences or uh or you know weren't even you know uh units unto themselves but rather uh you know uh co-majors and and things like that well here was a situation where they tenured their own faculty where um where uh their budget uh line uh was appropriate or was a uh, you know, dispersed by way of the provost office, and and so uh, for many, many, many uh, people, that was almost a almost kind of a role model or a a model of of units, and so uh, that occurred at at Cornell University, where uh, much of the attention in terms of Black students uh, and Cornell University had been paid to the to the Willard Strait Hall takeover, where students took up arms to protect themselves uh, and that sort of thing. And so I I make the argument that the establishment of that Africana Studies and Research Center was was uh, just as significant uh, in many ways as anything that happened in the Ivy League during the period.
0: You know, I wanted to talk a bit about one of the other themes of the book, which is just increasing access for black students and thinking about admissions. And since uh, probably a lot of our listeners have been following the Harvard anti-affirmative action case that's in the trial phase right now, um, it might be helpful for some of the listeners to hear, you know, what uh, what these early affirmative action policies look like. When did, when did they start in the Ivy League and what they actually looked like early on? Right. Some of the earliest affirmative action policies
1: uh uh, look like, uh, the children of Ivy league students or the children of Ivy league graduates, uh, attending, uh, the institution. Uh, they, you know, um, and so, uh, they look like, um, they had, uh, special categories for students who attended certain kinds of high school. So you're talking about St. Paul's and Groton and, uh, the Andovers and, and, uh, uh the various preparatory and day schools um that uh well that your judge Kavanaughs and your judge Gorsuch's and and your your uh Mullers and and these kinds of people those kinds of day schools so people got special treatment for attending those schools people got special treatment for uh their parents having attended uh having attended these institutions or for having a certain amount of money uh, but later affirmative action efforts uh, brought uh, black students onto campus. And so it was difficult because these institutions, these Ivy League institutions in the 50s and 60s, I would say this, didn't precisely know how to recruit um that that because of prestige, uh, because they were known as as the top schools in the nation, uh, students knew to apply there. Well, they didn't know how to recruit black students, and so early on, they tried things. They tried uh, uh, national uh, foundations that that uh, brought black students from urban areas in the south to the north to to try to place them in. Elite white institutions. They tried that. That was slow moving. They tried uh, uh, various other things. Uh, uh, programs like the Foundation Year at Dartmouth College, where they brought students to campus for a year to uh, remediate, uh, and they looked to urban students. They went to the West Side of Chicago and uh, recruited out of out of a well a, a street gang called the uh, the Vice Lords. Uh, and and so they, you know, brought students to campus uh, that way. And so part of what they needed, though, uh, was help from black people themselves. And that's where students came in. Students oftentimes in the earlier parts uh, uh, were doing the recruiting uh, of of other black students. Um, and so that's significant in itself because they weren't necessarily paid to do so. Uh, that was somebody's job, but they were doing that um, uh, as part of this this effort but also um, but also students were demanding uh, uh, admissions officers, black admissions officers uh, that would help with the with the effort in terms of hiring and that sort of thing, um, uh, as affirmative action became uh, became more policy uh, Students here again helped the university by pushing for these Black Studies programs, which, uh, uh, in essence, helped to boost the number of Black uh, professors on campus. Uh, and so, um, and so, these were the techniques used to bring Black people onto campus. And um, and there was pushback. Uh, some of these day schools were actually upset when. Um, when admissions officers started looking beyond the prep schools and the day schools to uh, to recruit uh, black students. And so they felt as though these uh, these prep schools and day schools felt as though they were being discriminated against uh, because uh, students from outside of that network were being admitted at higher rates. Some of that has to do with uh You know, with things like Pell Grants and, uh, you know, and loans and and other kinds of scholarships and and things like that. But some of it had to do with with this idea that uh, finally people started to realize that uh, that uh, smart black students existed outside of those
0: prep schools and day schools and that you had to go get them. We've talked a lot of so far about some of the kind of enduring legacies of the of the movement. I'm wondering, it, it, throughout your research, did you start to see some um, signs of some enduring failures of the movement? Just things that uh, really important things that Black students lost, or things that universities have uh, initial victories that universities have rolled back more recently? Yeah, I think one of the things that was lost,
1: um, and the scholar activist Vincent Harding spoke to this was. When these institutions started opening up to uh black students, faculty and staff and, and administrators, there was uh what could be described as as a bit of a brain drain uh from historically black colleges and universities. Uh and so uh some of the you know, some of the scholars that were doing really well uh were picked up by the Ivy League. Uh say for instance, um uh Charles Hamilton who was co-author of of the book Black Power uh in perfect Ivy fashion Columbia University um uh, you know uh said if you okay you want uh Black Power and you want Black Studies then we'll get Mr Black Power Charles Hamilton to to come in and, and, and teach at the institution. Well, he had taught it at Roosevelt College uh, in uh, Chicago, which was predominantly black and uh, and very urban. And those students, they needed him uh, as much as any other students. And so there's that part of it. Uh, but also um, one of the things that that I uh, frequently tell young people is it's is difficult, it's very difficult to to get things, it's difficult to get higher black admissions. It's it's difficult to get uh, things like a, a black cultural center and and those sorts of things. Uh, but it's much much more difficult to to keep those things. And so what we've seen is um, uh, rollbacks in a sense of black admissions. Uh, part of that uh, because of the larger push against. Affirmative action, the larger push against uh, uh, what the right has called race based uh, admissions um, and that sort of thing. Schools becoming skittish about uh, issues of uh, what they're calling diversity um, because of fear of litigation and and that sort of thing. Those are those are some of the things that are. Uh, 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 problematic uh, for students today. Um, I think, uh, in terms of of uh, other things that, that may have been lost or or, or uh, that haven't worked out so well. Um, uh, one of those things has to do with uh, with the support of. Black studies it uh black studies on these campuses have always had to be had to be defended uh, in a way. Um, some of the programs struggled for a while but but uh because of resources because of 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 students' ability to continue protesting uh some of these uh, some of these programs have, have been able to, to to bolster themselves, but but there were times when when uh, they struggled uh, along with other ethnic studies programs.
0: Yeah, well, I'd love to end just by um, thinking about the, the the recent activism, black student activism on some of the Ivy League campuses. Um, do you have any you know, given the research that you've done here in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, do you have any pieces of pieces of advice for those students who are trying to challenge their institutions right now?
1: Yeah, one is is of course acquaint they should acquaint themselves with the history uh and so um as as is uh always the case there is nothing new under, under the sun uh and so uh in many ways these students can learn a lot from uh the actions of of earlier students i think that's one part of it the second part of it is is uh like those students from p- previous periods including that period before world war 2 uh, if the campaigns are about, uh, the students themselves and how they feel at this very moment, they'll likely fail. But if the campaigns are, are about, uh, access and success for students, uh, in the future and, and for, for, uh, freedom for black people in the in the future, then, then I think they'll be more successful. I think the other things to to keep track of is uh, everybody uh, everybody loves diversity, but nobody wants to pay for diversity. And so, um, and so, I think the students themselves should should be aware of things like budgets and timelines and 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 that sort of thing. That uh, that was one of the things that that students did very well. Uh, um, in that period after World War II is, is, uh, they were able to hold their institutions accountable, uh, at Brown University, uh, black students wouldn't come back on a campus until the university made a commitment of a certain, you know, certain amount of funding. Uh, the same is true, uh, with students who took over other buildings, uh, throughout the, throughout the Ivy League um and so and so that commitment of funding that commitment of timelines uh is important and then finally uh is students today uh oftentimes feel as though uh you know they don't belong and and that sort of thing when talking with one student who uh attended who attended uh uh Dartmouth College he had said that he was always aware that he was intelligent. That he was always aware that he was smart. Uh, these students need to realize that they're intelligent and smart, and they deserve to be there, and and uh, and that uh, that uh, getting to the table or being able to. To uh, be around a network of, of powerful elite people is is not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. And so, uh, if they are really uh, the caretakers of the future, then they have to take care of uh, of, of the idea of justice and, and freedom, particularly for
0: for black people. Well, great advice, Stephen Bradley. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much, Matt. The book is up at, upending the ivory tower. Thank you for listening.